All right, welcome to Realcom's third installment in the Real Estate Data and Analytics series. I'm Chuck Neiswanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, sitting in for Realcom's Sarah Bempra as host of today's webinar, Data Case Studies, Taking the Organization to New Heights. And thank you for tuning into the live session or viewing this as a recording. Either way, this content is something Realcom brings to you to help in your company's digital transformation. But before we get started, let me just go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience, either live or, or listening to it. So, And thank you to all those live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We'll try to get to all the questions, but if we don't answer them during the webinar, we'll follow up once the event is concluded. You'll find today's presentation and the last two slide decks in the handout section of your GoToWebinar control panel. And for the West Web, what best, <laughs> that's easy to say, for the best webinar experience, we recommend do, that you close out any internet applications, especially the streaming videos ones that they do interfere. If you're experiencing any technical issues though with connectivity, sound or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again, or you can also email Ian Thompson at ithompson at realcom.com for more help. But don't worry, it's all being recorded, so you won't miss anything, and you'll receive a link to the recording in just a few days. This educational webinar is supported by our two gold sponsors today. CoStar empowers industry professionals with the most comprehensive data combined with reliable tools, resources, and a deep understanding on nearly 6 million CRE properties across every market. DealPath is the industry's most trusted cloud-based real estate deal management platform, providing real-time access to secure current investment data that empowers strategic and predictive decisions. We really thank all our sponsors for helping us out here at Realcom. And if you're thinking about data consolidation, property analytics, your acquisition pipeline and deal management, you need to include these companies in your vendor evaluation process. There's our moderator, Hazel Mann, principal of Zeta Advisory. She's an entrepreneur, an innovator in investment management technologies, and someone I consider a good friend. Hazel, it's great seeing you. Great seeing you as well, Chuck. Always great to be on a panel with you and having you as a um, as a coordinator and working with you on this. Thank all you right, so it's all yours. I'll get out of your way. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. Hi, everyone. Um, Hazel Mann here. Super excited to update you guys on the state of the industry as far as data is concerned. I do this around every quarter um, and give an update on, on where things are. But first, um, let's cut to a poll because what's a chat about data without some data as part of the presentation. So um, Ian, can we please show the poll? So I do this pretty much every time we have a data discussion. So please choose from one of the five below um, and we'll give you around 30 seconds to see where you are. Um, all answers are anonymous and this gives us a way to see where everyone is in the audience so we can also better direct the conversation. Great, so I'm going to go on and talk about the background of this poll, which I think people will find pretty interesting. Um, I'm gonna get a hold of my mouse here. Um, so I started doing this poll in 2019, um, and back then the landscape was quite different. So contrasting it to the landscape today gets pretty interesting. Um, back then, most people were just starting out 
um, we had a really minor um, segment using advanced analytics. And um, while some were trying to actively use analytics, um, the world was just in basic mode. And then um, the following years in um, half of Q1, uh, the first half of 21 and second half 21, you see this gradual shift toward um, people actively using analytics. Um, and uh, surprisingly, a lot of folks were using ad advanced analytics regularly um, in the second half of last year. Um, Ian, can we go back to the results of the poll, please? Great, so this gets super exciting because it looks like we have um, a lot of folks um, actively tied um, for just starting actively using and still a large number who are moving over to that advanced analytics slot, which is really exciting. So the presenters can take note of this and we can speak to um, the two large groups and then also um, touch on advanced analytics. Thank you, Ian. So I'm going to talk about a couple of trends that are going on today. When I get a hold of this, there we go. Um, and so my background, I started on the acquisition asset management side and worked for the sixth largest owner of office um, and then fourth largest owner of medical office in the world and kind of fell down the data hole, got a background in data science from Johns Hopkins, and now I specialize in AI and blockchain and IoT for real estate. So the trends that we've been seeing um, in the last quarter um, that are significant and I've been hearing from my colleagues in the industry as well um, our number one quant expansion to um, budget, a really large budget being set aside for prop tech for your average owner. And, and three, um, the discussion of an ESG is evolving quite a bit and maturing from where it used to be. Let's see if I can click through this. Great. So um, on the quant discussion, uh, Forbes had, had a really good article about quantitative firms being added to CRE with um, intent to actively use artificial intelligence. And so one of the most common questions I get from my colleagues is, do you know AI scientists or engineers who specialize in AI who are willing to work for real estate? Um, and the main driving force behind this is solving for a lot of the inefficiencies in our data because the data does affect a lot of critical large volume or large valuation decisions. So this is the first time I've seen real estate get really serious about quants and adding them to their team, not just as, oh, we need to have one, but no, we actively need to use them for a purpose and a long-term strategy. So that's that's a newer part. Um, the second uh, item is on prop check. Before prop check was a nice to have and okay, we'll pick something up if everyone else is doing it. But uh, Deloitte did a survey toward the end of last year, um, and they found out that three quarters of real estate firms would actually expand their current investments or invest in new prop tech this year. So that's a pretty large contrast to before. Um, and lastly, uh, tracking on ESG, we have a lot of folks interested in sustainability and wellness features, and this is driving demand on the tenant side. So things to note are indoor air quality, ventilation systems, and indoor environmental features, which has been top of mind, but um, the CBRE report really corroborates the data on these items of demand. So I also like going into the M&A for the industry as well. Um, while the bulk of prop tech investments 
has been in the residential side, um, focused on home investments, second home investments, making the purchase and transaction of residential real estate easier for the consumer. Um, the M&A transactions uh, really dwarf the capital raises that we've been seeing. Um, the M&A transactions usually revolve, have revolved around a lot of construction tech for the prior quarter. And um, this quarter for Q, Q3, uh, the last quarter, Q4, um, MSCI um, is acquiring real capital analytics for decision making um, for global investment management is really interesting because they're um, pretty much buffering up their real estate data um, as part of their decision making platform. And then we see Procore and level set for uh, liens. So looking at a lot of vertical integration where companies are extending their capabilities in their space. And then the, the two below are um, our residential companies. So a lot of moves and, um, and a lot of movement in this sector for both the commercial and residential side. So really excited to kick off our panel today. Um, we, our first panelist is Sundar Papu. He has more than 20 years of experience in the technology industry. He's currently the VP of technology at Inland Real Estate Group. And this is one of the nation's largest real estate finance organizations. Sundar, welcome to the stage. Thank you. Thank you, Hazel. So, um, you know, a little bit about Inland Real Estate Group. Um, so we, we, we are about a 50 plus year old company. Uh, we are owner operator uh, in, um, in a basically in all the 49 states um, have done, you know, most of our focus is basically on uh, commercial and residential. And we also actually help out. Uh, we also do a lot of work in the other asset types too. Um, and then um, moving along, Oh, sorry. Uh, I think I just moved a little bit fast over there. Sorry. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we would be, we basically wanted to talk about is how do you actually utilize the data to get to, to gain valuable insights? I think one of the um, you know uh, you know looking through a a particular chart that you see on on the screen here. Uh, you know, this was a this was based on a CRE innovation report that Altus Group had actually put out again back in 2019. Still holds true, right? So, uh, if you look through most of the uh, work, you know that has been done is in the mill mill uh, area where basically sorry, um, apologize there. Okay in the middle area with with regards to the sensitivity analysis and other areas uh, but having said that like you know you're seeing a lot more you know technology that's actually putting in um, that's basically looking at you know every aspect within the real estate industry is now being you know has now been affected by the usage of ai and ml technology which is something that we at inland have actually uh, looked into and basically have created some, you know, a POC, so like, you know, pilot and pilot projects that, um, you know, provided some uh, overall uh, things that we can actually, uh, you know, we see value from. So the next, um, you know, basically want to talk about one particular project, 
and I'll basically go in detail on you know how we went through. Um, you know, we were looking at a particular a um, you know Argus is basically the the gold standard within the real estate industry for your valuation and other areas. So one of the things that we had looked at was you know um, you know we got a you know my my boss at the time had gotten a uh, a, a brochure that basically are an email soliciting you know how they actually had created a solution that was on par with what Argus did and that basically you know was what drove it drove our CIO at the time to actually say you know how we can be able to use uh, can we create something on our own so we put our heads together and said like you know what we see we can be able to do it right so uh, we actually started working on this particular solution. Uh, you know, probably about eight to ten weeks into the project, um, you know, as we actually, it was a lean project, like with about four people, um, me leading that particular solution. Uh, you know, we actually created a, a mock area, a, a mock solution that we can actually be able to work through. Uh, it required a lot of, you know, uh, manpower and uh, resources and a lot of cost uh, money to actually build up to scale and we decided that was not the right way for us to go uh, because that was not our you know the business goal that we were actually driving towards so we pulled the plug and but there were many learnings from that particular uh you know poc that we did and one of the things that we actually came out of that was in regards to the budgeting and forecasting. <clears throat> so one of the things like, you know, it's a it's a thing that, you know, from a budgeting and forecasting perspective, you know, the challenges are, it's a time consuming process. Um, you know, it's all dependent on people and the property managers that basically have to pull in. And, you know, the other thing that basically that particular budget is based on previous year's data, right? So, um, and you cannot actually cross-reference any data. And then from an accuracy perspective, and it's a point at time. So you're basically taking your budget that you're creating at a point of time. So we thought that would be a good way for us to actually work through. And um, you know, like that would be a good solution to work on. And we actually looked at one property uh, and we said, okay, let's look at the last five years because we had the historical data within our systems and then build up a, a model. And we focused mostly on the expense side of the house. We did not look at the revenue side uh, because that was an easier way for us to actually work through. And by doing so, what we saw, saw was like by going through this particular process, you know, like we felt that like by going through the using technology to drive some of those things, the budgeting process can be done faster. Uh, you get good insight into your data. You can also do reforecasting on a monthly basis if you have to. And then um, you can do, you know, you can also prescribe any corrective action if you have to do, right? So that's basically how, you know, some of the key benefits that you would actually derive from that. Uh, the results that we saw was, you know, when you compared the baseline against the actual data, so, against using, uh, you know, comparing the ML model, uh, we saw that using the ML model, the variance was very low, 
right? So it was about one to two percent. Whereas an individual doing it, it was close to about anywhere from about five to seven percent. Um, we did this across, you know, we started with one property, we extended it to five, and you know, those were some of the results that we saw. So, what would be the next steps that we follow on this? Um, the biggest thing, the biggest challenge with this particular process is, you know, to scale up, you need to have resources. Um, you know, that's the biggest challenge. You need to have data analysts and other stuff, right? So, uh, you know, so that was a big hindrance across the board. Uh, the other thing that we also wanted to look into was adding the revenue. You know, we added revenue, but at, at the point, at, at some point, it was about the variance was not as great that we saw from a human perspective to what the model provided. So, so that's another thing that we'll have to work on and basically train the model to do. The other thing that we basically have is like, you know, the portfolio that we have is not constant, right? It changes from, you know, you know from where we start today to where it ends at the end of the year. So if you add up all these properties together, you know, that's another area that we wanted to look into. And then uh, the other thing that we also did not, you know, also want to check into is like add third party data sources to the budget model. So for example, demographic data, weather data, social media sentiments, et cetera. Now these are all big problems that you can, you know, you want to actually look into. We started with a small piece. We have good results based on that, but to add all these will take, you know, there'll be a lot of cost, you know, time and resources that will have to be allocated that. And that's where we basically, um, you know, we are looking to, um, you know, uh, solution providers are there. And, you know, like we did this with our RPA solution, we looked at a, uh, a company called techforce.ai, uh, which actually helped us. And similarly, on the same vein, for this particular problem, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a company out there uh, that we are actually looking to called elevo.ai. So elevo actually, their solution is focused on enabling the data analysts to easily create the ML predictions and provide prediction services. So now once you actually take the Elevo, uh, the Elevo solution that you have and then bring it up to the customer's big heterogeneous data, now you can make this particular ML prediction via simple SQL-like script. So that's basically what we can do here, right? So then after that, Elevo can actually automate some of our processing, which is ingesting of data, data processing, the ML model training and other things where we were basically putting in a lot of data analysts across the board. So that's basically what I wanted to actually bring up from a use case study perspective. Uh, you know, so there are ways we can actually tackle this problem. Uh, you know, it is not, you know, it's a age old problem that we want to actually look into uh, that, you know, hopefully if we can solve, uh, we'll actually provide a lot more value to the overall industry uh, across the board. And I want to leave you with this, right? So, you know, what I wanted to say was, you know, when we started it, it seemed very, you know, it always seems impossible unless you actually pick up a small thing and you get it done. And, you know, even though the next steps that I basically said, those are, you know, big items, unless we do it, we cannot say it cannot be done, right? So that's basically where we are. So here's a, here's a alternate audio.
Thank you, Sandra. Really great presentation touches on a lot of exciting points. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI in real estate, and we see a lot of um, people coming in from non-industry or general finance. So one of the struggles I, I hear quite often, um, considering that your company is a lot further on, on its applying AI to really practical use cases, especially budgets, because I know that that was especially painful for me. Um, how did you go about separating what was hype for reality when you started on exploring these projects? And any tips on the way that companies can make sure AI is actually real and not just slideware? Sure. You know, I think it starts now, like, you know, the, the first question is like, you know, when we actually started looking into this, um, you know, where do we start is the first question, right? So, you know, that basically means like, you know, what exactly are we looking for? Is it to better the internal processes that we have? Or is it to better improve our customer experience? Or is it like features of a product that we may not be able to get from product that we're using? Um, so basically all that we are doing is like, you know, if you combine all of them together, you know, it's basically helping our business to actually move forward. So the way we looked at it is like AI is a tool that can help you with all these things that I just mentioned and much more, right? But having, having said that, our, strat our AI strategy has to be a part of an overall arching business plan whether we are currently, we are improving our current business processes or building out new businesses. Um, so it should be helping the, that particular business plan and not the other way around. So if you have that as your, as your key, uh, key thing, then you can actually move forward. So the, the other things that we have done is like, you know, we looked at, um, you know, like took some small, small areas like pain points that our business uh, areas actually had. We took them, we tried to, you know, build small things like starting with an RPA, repeatable processes, right? Use RPA tools to build up. Now, once you had that particular win, small wins, now we actually said, okay, let's actually take it to the next level. And that's how we actually built up, um, you know, looking at the bigger pain points that the businesses had, whether it be in the case of, you know, an example that I'll basically throw out was, you know, in, in you know, about 10 years ago, we had only one distribution channel that we could actually use. That was through the broker dealers. You know, then there was a sudden change in the industry of using, you know, crowdsourcing and other things, right? So, you know, what we did is like, you know, we created a crowdsourcing platform ourselves, right? So in case, if our business did want to go that route, you know, working with our business, we said, okay, let's actually have a, a shell that we can create in case we need to sell our products to that particular platform. We did not use it, but we still have, you know, we have the wherewithal if we have to take it further. Um, sales side, you know, that's something that we actually helped on and other areas, um, you know, looking at Argus as a, you know, as an example, right? So that's how you can actually build in. Like the, the key things that you can actually start with is very small elements that will create value for the business. And then based on that, the business then actually becomes a part of your strategy and help drive some of those things. 
It makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Senator, for all that insight. And we do have questions from the audience, um, and we'll get to them during the Q&A. So please keep on asking your questions. We had some good questions for Senator. So um, please keep typing those in as those come up. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. Great. I'd like to introduce our next panelist, Aaron Alcher, to the stage. Um, Aaron is the Director of Technology Initiatives at Car Properties. His focus is in um, his focus for 2022 is around IT innovation and data automation and the return to work movement. Aaron, good to see you. Hey, Hazel, how are you? Good, good. Always great to hear from you. Thanks, Leah. Last time I saw you was in Scottsdale at the IQ Lab. Yeah, so. yeah hopefully next time I see you is at uh, the next Realcom in Orlando. I'll be there. Right. Yeah, I'll so that's a, thanks. That's a great segue. Um, you know, for those on the call that I met out in, in Scottsdale, uh, we had a lot, a lot to talk about in terms of IoT, IAQ, and uh, what's going on with, with environmental and air quality and return to work. Um, if you weren't in Scottsdale, what we did, it was really cool. Um, uh, Howard, Jim, uh, Hazel, the, the other, Ian, the other folks at Realcom, uh, and, and Ilan Zakar and I put together an IAQ lab where we brought together collection of different technologies um, that had to do with uh, with clean air, that had to do with environmentals and air quality, uh, and put them all in this kind of live operating lab where uh, through the show we were collecting real-time analytics on air quality. So we were measuring CO2, we were measuring humidity, we we're measuring VOCs and particle matter and all those elements that contribute um, to and against uh, the spread of COVID-19, the spread of other viruses. Uh, as as we're seeing from from our markets with uh, with car properties uh, being a, a pressing and relevant item for for people looking to sign leases now, um, so that was a whole lot of fun. I hope we get to to do something cool and innovative in Orlando. Um, but it was it was a great time. So for those of you that I haven't met, my name is Aaron Ulcher. Uh, I am with Car Properties, and uh, Car is a let's get to the slides here. There we go. Uh, so Car's a real estate company in DC uh, and we have uh, properties throughout the DC metro area, Boston, Massachusetts, and most recently in Austin, Texas. Uh, we focus on commercial office. However, we've, uh, we've done a recent project in multifamily uh, and we also do development as well. Um, we, over the last year, we've uh, delivered a few projects in and around the DC area and one in uh, Boston, Massachusetts that's getting ready to deliver at the beginning of next year called One Congress. Uh, it's a really magnificent structure. It's gonna be a million square foot. Um, it's like a giant glass uh, sail, beautiful architecture, beautiful views of the city, the Charles River. Uh, it's gonna be spectacular. Um, so I, uh, I'll jump into a little bit about my journey with CAR, what we're working on today. And uh, I'm gonna come right on the heels of, of the wonderful information that Sunder shared with us about the relevance for, for automation right now. Um, it looks like uh, Inland is really strong on the machine learning side of things. And, and today I'm gonna focus a little bit more on the automation uh, side, but it's always helpful to understand the foundation of, of where we came from before we can implement some of this automation, some of this cool stuff that's out there now. Um, and it, it really is the fundamentals of data collection and analytics. So just quickly about our journey, um, 
we've been at this about three, three and a half years now of uh, being a, a very data hungry, a big appetite for data uh, throughout our properties and our organization uh, to collect as much as we can with the sole purpose of providing transparency. So phase one of the, the data analytics program was to get that single pane of glass where ownership, uh, leadership, the board could see at a portfolio level what was going on in terms of access control, maintenance and operations, energy consumption, network usage, uh, cybersecurity, our hospitality programs, and most recently, um, IoT endpoints uh, in the shape of, of air quality. So we deliver that all into this really nice solution through single pane of glass. Uh, we have a phenomenal partner, RestorePoint, uh, that we work with that, that does our data warehousing. Uh, and we, we work through the process of you know, organizing, modeling that data so we can make sense of it in terms of building out the dashboards, doing the filters, um, and then get to where we are now, which is, which is the automation piece. So on my little maturity chart, as we, we go from, from left to right here, uh, I'm, if I was to give Carr a, a grade or a sort of a state of where we are right now, I'd probably um, plop us right between uh, where we have observation, understanding, and, and automation as we're just getting into that, uh, that automation uh, stage. So we have a long ways to go, much like many other operators, but I think it starts with, uh, with the small wins. I think with any AI or uh, ML project, you, know, you have to do the crawl, walk, run method, uh, get some early wins, get buy-in from the business, and establish that culture for folks that are gonna be benefiting from the AI, benefiting from the data. Um, so they're all working uh, together with you. Uh, so a little bit about this project, um, I'll jump into the automation piece, uh, but for, for IAQ Collection, we partnered with Senseware and Aura Air, and um, we are the first um, real estate operator to go portfolio-wide uh, and implement portfolio-wide in every ha air handler in our property. So in addition to the nodes that um, are uh, are operated by our BMS systems. Uh, we're using the third-party senseware um, air quality IQ devices to measure those key elements. And I think this is kind of a no-brainer for an operator right now. Uh, but what I've heard is this is where a lot of the, the work has ended or where a lot of people are thinking about, well, what do you do now that you have constant data coming from all of these different endpoints. I mean, CAR, we're relatively small compared to a company like Inland, and, and we are delivering up to 400 new sensors that are producing um, you know, hundreds of lines of, of data for us every second. So we really have to be prepared on what we're gonna do with that data to benefit from the investment of the IoT program. Uh, so following that uh, crawl, walk, run uh, method, we, we started simple just with building out an alerts program to our, our building operations and building engineering teams. Um, so there's a few technologies at play uh, to accomplish this. So I talked a little bit about Senseware here on the left. Uh, and with our Senseware data, this is where we're understanding the data that's coming from the sensors and the limits that we wanna set around uh, how we're gonna trigger these alerts. So we have our thresholds that are set sensors are out there reading and let's say for example uh, we're using co2 we have a threshold limit at 1200 parts per million for co2 read uh, now i will say for those people on the call from sustainability car operates far beneath 
the, the CO2 uh, 1200 PPM um, limit. But just for this example, that's where our threshold is. Um, and let's say for this example, we see an elevated reading. Then we move the data into our, our basically our internal alerts and automation program called Tusker BI. Uh, so this is a, a product that we built internally along with RestorePoint, where we author and script a lot of our alert policies. Uh, and it gives us access and control and, um, and, and transparency into, into how alerts are, are generated. And we can write our own triggers and do our groupings around um, the automation. Similar to how if you've ever used a tool like Zapier, it's, it follows the same concept where you can um, really articulate through the system what you want the, um, the action to be from a particular trigger. Uh, so the policy is triggered. And currently, uh, we're just sending notification out to the engineers. But in, um, in the coming weeks here, we're moving this into a direct, uh, basically a direct post method into our ticketing tool. Uh, and for us, it's Prism or Building Engines Prism. Uh, but as we look to expand this program, the, the fundamental platform that runs this, where as we take data in, it references a policy that we've made and then executes some sort of action uh, can extend to many other aspects of our uh, of our operating um, of our operating programs. So what we're uh, what we will see really with the program in the coming months is take it post the prism, and then uh, we can drop the workflow into our existing uh, workflow um, workflow systems where we outline you know service level agreements, where we outline escalations, where we outline uh, reporting. So right now, um, as I mentioned, the uh, the notices are going out to the engineers. And right now, um, really in the first 60 days of the program deployment, uh, we're looking for data validation. So what's happening is if a, a high CO2 alert triggers goes out to the team, the team responds with a basically a secondary like handheld um, device to validate whether the data is correct. And then and then they note um, to vet against the accuracy of the sensor. And, um, and contribute that into the response uh, program that we're developing. So where things get really fun for me is, you know, we've been working really hard on collecting all these different data sets. And, um, and, and now with the benefit of building out this automation piece, um, we can layer all the hard work that we've done with data into the and leverage the new controls that we have in place for this automation. So you might see a scenario where we now we have three data sets at play here with this scenario. We have access control, we have maintenance operations data, and now we have our, our new set of uh, IoT data from our air quality sensors. So through this program, you know, we're going to look at um, in a particular space, let's say this is a, a conference room, conference center, for example, uh, and we're looking at access control data and we say, hey, uh, if we get 100, uh, over 100 unique entries into this particular space um, and CO2 is elevated higher than we, we like, we're going to write a command to the BMS to bring in more fresh air, turn on the HVAC system, make some adjustments to the environmentals. Where in today's you know, day and age, we don't get direct transparency into live um, access control analytics based on alerts and the IAQ data may, you know, may come in and it's kind of like in a, 
um, you know, in a bubble, it doesn't have all the data as to maybe why the, uh, the CO2 is elevated. So then the engineer would have to respond on site and see, okay, there's a lot of people in the conference room. Um, uh, in addition to, um, to those two data sets, we can also bring in like maintenance operations data. So we can look at, let's say in this conference room, we've had um, X number of uh, maintenance tickets, preventative maintenance work, um, this kind of historic look at how the, the space has been maintained and then determine to, um, you know, how we, we want to uh, react if certain tickets are higher uh, in, in addition to lots of people in the room, in addition to high uh, air quality levels, so on and so forth. Um, so I think this is about my time to wrap up here, but where we're, where we're really going is to take the platform that we built for automated IEQ response and extend it out to all these different uh, really interesting data sets that we've been collecting uh, through the course of the program. All right, thank you so much for the, the great presentation, Aaron. Really interesting to see what you've been doing and how relevant it is to a lot of the themes that have been coming up um, on the investment side for, for ESG. Um, really curious to see how the data from your deployment from your IAQ program has altered your company's practical approach to managing the return to work and, and what that strategy is looking like today? Sure, so uh, a couple things that, that were immediate wins for us, uh, and then talk about how that plays into return to work. Once we deployed sensors, we realized that we had systems in place, and I'm talking from buildings that we had purchased, not built, but from that had older systems in them, that the sensors allowed us to do immediate validation of the BMS systems that we had in place. We realized that a lot of those systems that we trusted needed calibration, and it wasn't to any, you know, anything that the teams were doing wrong. It was just awareness. We didn't have any insight or benchmarking against. So we were able to tune and kind of validate uh, what we were doing in the in the buildings to make our spaces operate the way that we think they should be. Um, based on return to work, um, the the effort right now is to figure out how we articulate this data out to our customers and do it in the way where we're informing enough so they understand what's going on, but not over inform where it becomes confusing, it becomes a distraction. Um, so one of the uh, implementations that I'm designing out right now is a change to our uh, customer experience mobile app, uh, where we initially had it set up to attend events and get perks and um, you know, attend fitness classes and things like that and do take-home meals where I'm tailoring that to bring in some of my data from this analytics platform to show what is the current occupancy like in the fitness center, for example, what is the current temperature? What is the current humidity level in the fitness center? So you can be in one of our buildings and say, okay, I'd like to go use this amenity right now. Let me see based on live counts, how many people are down in the fitness center, what the air quality is in terms of temperature and humidity from the basic levels. So, um, we are, we're exploring, we haven't gotten to the point where we're publishing, you know, data uh, publicly at this point, uh, but we do see this as a sort of hand in hand step into the return to work um, strategy. Awesome. Really great approach and always great hearing updates to, to what you've been working on, Aaron. Thank you so much. Um, oh, I'm going to switch over and switch gears now. Um, we have uh, our next panelist, Kelly Clark, but first we have a brief video from CoStar that we're going to show. Tenants drive better outcomes for renewals and new space with direct access to CoStar market data and analytics. Get complete summaries of market and submarket conditions for office, retail, and more. 
instantly review vacancy, absorption, and other KPIs. See leasing and rent trends, including forecasts, as well as a complete list of available properties. Or easily search properties by radius or corridor. Each property has detailed photos, office and retail space availability, lease comps, current tenants, and much more. Quickly examine peer properties and demographics like population, housing, and employment. The market analytics and related data adjust for any selection of properties. Save searches for specific criteria and get automatic alerts as soon as new properties become available. Empower your real estate team to secure stronger negotiating positions, direct brokers more effectively, and deliver more cost savings. Learn more by scheduling a customized demonstration now. So I'd like to introduce our next panelist, Kelly Clark. He's a senior director at Co um, and co-star real estate manager. He brings more than 25 years of leadership, marketing technology, and professional and business development expertise to CoStar. He currently represents the company's market data analytics and management application solutions for corporate and retail tenants. Kelly, great to have you. I'm going to switch it over to you for your presentation. Great, thank you so much. Uh, glad to be here. I'm going to give you a, a look at real estate data strategy from a uh, corporate um, tenant or a retail tenant perspective. Uh, my division works with hundreds of companies that lease and own space in both the retail and the corporate um, world. And um, <clears throat> today I'm going to share one uh, success story we've had. We've worked with a Fortune 500 bank for many years now, and not only defining their uh, data strategy, but evolving it over time. A lot of people think about CoStar as just a leading source of real estate data, but we also do applications and help guide um, strategy. So um, I guess somehow that slide jumped ahead. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. So <clears throat> we helped um, this you know, large bank uh, grow to the size they are today, which is to have, you know, more than uh, 2,000 locations in 26 states. And the first thing we did was kind of look at what their overall, um, you know, where they were, basically. And we tried to apply a data strategy to the four areas we look at from a uh, real estate life cycle. And uh, what I'm going to do is kind of touch on each of these four areas and give you a little bit of insight from a uh, perspective of, um, you know, what we did from challenges, uh, what, what challenges we saw through the data uh, strategy mapping process and what solutions we were able to provide. So beginning with planning, you know, and one thing I wanted to say on the previous slide, let me just jump back to that, is not only looking at the cycles of, of which, you know, which of these areas need a plan, but also what departments and what stakeholders are involved, because beyond just the real estate team, you have, you know, finance, capital planning, um, you know, procurement, IT, and uh, with the new lease accounting standards that were announced in 2016, and also the accounting department became more involved in the process, as well as, of course, executive leadership trying to, um, you know, plan out what the, what the uh, company's strategy was. One of the main things that the bank wanted to achieve was growth through acquisition. So the first thing we wanted to do is figure out if they're looking at an acquisition target, what does their uh, real estate footprint look like and how do you overlay the acquisition targets real estate footprint with the, uh, 
current uh, banks' uh, operations. So they needed to ha have a access to um, you know real estate data to look at that without necessarily notifying the market, either brokers or the acquisition target real estate team itself, as to what their particulars of their real estate footprint might look like. Um, and they also needed, of course, a way of planning out data for forecasting future capital spend. So one of the things that uh, they were able to do was adopt applications that integrated external market data, like from CoStar, along with their internal headcount uh, from their ERP systems and be able to kind of prioritize uh, actions against their own portfolio, as well as make plans for uh, acquiring companies. And again, without the, uh, they wanted to do it confidentially, so they're not notifying the market of plans to uh, make real estate deals happen. <clears throat> On the execution side, they wanted to be able to uh, understand the market conditions for certain uh, properties or actions they were looking to uh, take without, uh, before they engage brokers, so they have a better understanding of you know what uh, conditions are there, even in the submarkets, and what would make the best uh, deals outcomes happen. And also, as they started to uh, you know, do transactions, they wanted to be able to engage a third party uh, vendors, uh, developers, brokers, that kind of thing, and be able to relay to them where the status of a transaction or a project was uh, without having to necessarily uh, go, you know, they wanted, they wanted one system to track all of the, the projects and transactions they were working on. And so the solution that they adopted allowed them to give access to external team members, you know, from third parties and be able to uh, be notified of tasks, add their own tasks to what they're doing and, uh, you know, move, move the process along more smoothly um, from an external and internal standpoint. Then on the, Put the next slide here. Oh. <laughs> All right, I was told about the delay there. Sorry, everybody. On the operations side, once um, you know deals were finalized, of course, the challenge of getting uh, data into a digital format was first and foremost one of their challenges because they just simply had a lot of documents and filing cabinets. So moving from a digital uh, moving from an analog system to a digital system was, was key, um, but also just trying to figure out how to report on things, how to give access to certain stakeholders, uh, who needs uh, access to the data, who doesn't, how to create workflows, and even how to create automated notifications for when critical dates are coming up for like renewals. Um, so they also needed to pay rents and things like that, and they didn't have an automatic system that integrated with the payable systems, GL systems to do that. So adopting a uh, lease administration system that streamlined payments, managed dates, and uh, created controls for the accounting team uh, where changes were made on a lease and it got reported automatically to the accounting team, whether it was payments or distributions or, or stop, you know, terminating a lease or anything like that. That was done um, automatically through the uh, system that they adopted. And finally, lease accounting came along with new standards in 2016 that um, both real estate and accounting teams didn't really ask for what they had to deal with. And with a bank that had more than a billion dollars in real estate and equipment leases, those um, assets had to be added to the balance sheet and accounted for. And the application uh, that they already had for lease administration also gave them a single platform to um, 
to report and be in compliance with the new standards. So it eliminated the need to add a duplicate entry of data for leases and things like that. It gave all the seamless workflow that, flow that they needed, as well as a secured platform, because as you might imagine, a bank's security and measures for IT are even higher than many uh, other companies might have. So one of the keys to their success was the ability to link external market data with the internal data that they often uh, needed. <clears throat> and here's just some examples of how those things were interlinked. And again, the essential uh, part of it was just how do you source the data that you need um, and secure it, but also make sure it's up to date. And then how do you link that to um, internal applications and even other systems like payables, GL systems, accounting, uh, headcount systems, and other ERP functions. And so they were able to uh, come up with a plan that did all that. So I kind of raced through that whole thing because I know we're on a constraint for time today, but if you want more information about this particular success story, you can hold your phone up and uh, use your camera to scan uh, the code on the right and get access to that PDF. That's also included, I think, in the uh, handouts for today. And if you want more information on how this uh, how CoStar helps companies like this with their data strategy, scan the code on the right and get taken to um, CoStarManager.com for more information. Um, thank you very much, and I wish everybody well on their journey for a real estate data strategy. Thanks so much, Kelly, for the presentation and a really interesting topic about what CoStar is doing today with the market data. Um, I have one question for you as a follow-up. Um, how was the external market data integrated with internal applications? Because one of the main concerns is making sure that um, market data matches up with the way that folks are using the data internally, which is also always a challenge. So um, how did you go about that process? Yeah, great question. So, you know, for CoStar, our applications for uh, lease administration, accounting and that kind of stuff, have a native um, API built in that pulls data from the um, CoStar system for market data and analytics into our applications. So that's kind of an out of the box solution. Um, we, we know at CoStar that a lot of people would like to have that data brought into other systems. And so they're looking at open APIs that will allow other systems to pull that data in with, of course, uh, subscriptions or licenses there. Um, and then we CoStar applications also have sort of out of the box, if you will, uh, built APIs that integrate data from ERP systems, uh, headcount systems, things like that. So, you know, Sharing data, of course, is a is an important piece of the pie, and um, you know different API systems is the answer for how we were able to do that. Great, awesome way to explain that, Kelly. And thank you for helping us understand that point more. Really appreciate you being here and for the presentation. Um, we're going to switch gears to uh, our next presenter, Cassie Strauss. Um, Cassie, it, she bring oh she brings a background um, as a strategic solution consultant at DealPath, uh, the leading deal management platform for real estate investment and development teams. Cassie, I'll let you take it over from here. Hey, Zoom. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for the introduction. And you know, thank you to RealCom for hosting us on today's webinar. Um, as Hazel mentioned, I'm a solutions consultant for DealPath. We are an online software platform that's empowering some of the top real estate investment teams to drive maximum performance on their assets from pipeline through portfolio management. And we're currently supporting over $10 trillion in transactions. 
So today I'm going to talk a bit about how leveraging automated data and streamlining processes, uh, specifically at the root of real estate, so really at your deal pipeline level, is help, uh, helps to grow your company and provide a really clear competitive advantage. So today's webinar, you know, we're focusing on case studies, so I'll be sharing some insights with you on one of our industrial clients uh, who acquires and develops in the logistics space and some of the results that we have seen from them. And I have to say that a lot of these results uh, are representative of a number of clients that we've seen come through in focus here. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. All right. So let's get started with some background on this client. So this client, like many others in real estate, really had two main challenges. So one of them was data decentralization. Um, they just had data in a number of different areas, Excel spreadsheets, et cetera. And this really caused their workflows to be complex. Uh, also a lot of back and forth communications. So just not having data at their fingertips and it taking a few days in order to have responses back on some key you know, metrics and the foundation to keep their business moving forward. Um, and, you know, I have to say, especially with Excel, you know, as soon as you start sending that, it really becomes out of date almost as soon as you send it. So I would say this was one key area that we dove into with them. Um, one element that I actually heard from McKinsey and company was that they said that, you know, reinvention is key to growth and that most of the time that reinvention um, means digitally. So this company in particular had started adopting technologies here and there, you know, and saw some small benefits. Um, but their main goal was that they were going to be raising a new fund and they wanted to truly um, exponentially their growth potential. So in order to have that and to be able to have it scalable, they needed to focus in on this particular area, which is the deal pipeline. So let's go ahead and back up here. All right. So let's pinpoint um, kind of their main goal here, as I mentioned, was raising their fund. So their main goal was to be able to be efficient and have efficient scalability with centralizing all this data. We mentioned the disparate data and having it all centralized in one place. Now, I'm a big theme person. You know, this is the overarching theme that we had for them, but there was a few main goals that we wanted to sit and really focus in on um, for them. The first was being uh, in order to, you know, grow their pipeline, they needed to be able to source that and have many different available optionalities in here. So their number one goal was to create optionality in their investment decision making and be able to have a big pipeline in order to do that. Um, second was, you know, as the as deals are closing or markets are becoming hot, they needed to be able to quickly sift and filter through that information. So having key insights to this analytics and all the new pipeline data that they were going to have um, was key. They wanted to be able to filter down to what was the most opportunistic to make sure that they were focusing their efforts in the right place. And then lastly, you know, I, I've talked a lot about centralization of data already, but instead of um, having to answer directly to emails constantly or going back and forth with the analysts, they wanted to be able to quickly dive in, see this information. Um, but besides that, it's really workflow oriented. So how are we going to be able to streamline these workflows and have it be and have it work, you know, across the different teams for the company? And ultimately, after we were able to focus in on their pipeline and start to um, really manage it down so that we have it simplified with smooth and easy processes, we were able to see some awesome results with them. 
So in particular, we were able to do a couple of things. You know, their results were monumental to the company. So one, in order to scale, they needed to make quick decisions. Uh, with DealPath, you know, uh, in particular, they were able to minimize that time frame. So instead of having it take days, they were actually able to uh, streamline down into minutes in order to capture that data. Uh, secondly, they were able to quadruple their assets under management. So, uh, you know, going from fourfold with this new AUM, they were actually able to get there and only had to double their headcount. So with the systems in place that they put, they're able to have that exponential growth. Um, and, you know, with a limited number in terms of the number of people that they actually need to grow the company with. And I just want to talk a little bit more about the key um, strategies that we dove into with them, but also just best practices in general that I've seen through working with a number of different clients here um, and through consulting in general. So strategy wise, you know, there is a method to the madness. Uh, we've repeatedly seen this work done. And the main point here is to really be able to start with the foundation. So there's so much in working with these clients, there's always so much data that they're looking to streamline and to bring into one consolidated space. A lot of times it can get overwhelming. There's uh, a lot of different places to look. The key point is to really start from the beginning and say, okay, what is the minimum uh, information that we're going to need in order to get this up and running, to get our processes going, um, and not get overwhelmed by the amount of data that you're trying to consolidate. So just starting at the foundation and making sure that you know we're focusing there. What are the essential elements and what is the main goal? And then second, you know, a little bit of I guess product lingo here, um, but being able to do this with the minimum viable product. So again, taking the simplicity and making sure that that's what we're seeing here. Um, simplicity is really key to driving this adoption. We've noticed that with a number of clients that try and uh, you know, take these large amounts of data, as long as we're streamlining this, we've seen a great results with the clients actually leveraging this information. And then um, you know, lastly, in terms of our processes, now that we have everything streamlined, we have our minimum viable product, one thing to note is just to not forget about the quantitative versus qualitative metrics here, um, especially in the IT world, we get really sucked into making sure that we have the correct data, the correct metrics, and that you know we're checking off all of those boxes. But a key element is to make sure that we're also understanding the qualitative side of these projects. You know, we want to make sure that um, we're not forgetting the user end of this, that we are working hand in hand with the business teams, and uh, that we're this is going to be an iteration you know there's always going to be a beginning point where you have this new implementations all set up um, but there's going to be iterations that's going to go back and forth with this with the business team and to not forget about um, the opportunity to do so uh, one other element that we've seen is that just you know the customizability aspect helps uh, with, really with both of these steps and with driving adoption and iterating um, by being able to customize different elements and having the language speak to what the way that the company is already working really helps to reduce the, the kind of the energy threshold to achieve these best results and it's a big catalyst for adoption and ultimately you know at the end of the day we're hoping to drive this all within one big command center um, but again starting with that foundation and iterating with the most with the minimum viable product that's needed and 
Lastly, just wanted to point out, you know, this is just one client out of many. So um, while we saw the quadruple growth um, by having this team focus in on their deal pipeline, we've also seen, you know, 5x, 30x, et cetera, with a number of different clients. So, you know, the client that I just talked about wasn't Blackstone, but this is just another example of clients who we've seen some massive exponential growth with who are really focusing on centralizing and automating uh, this specific area, really the lifeblood of their real estate firm. Thanks so much, Cassie, for, for the really great presentation. Um, and you had mentioned that the client was using the platform as a command center. So folks are always interested in what kind of data can help with decision making. Um, so what data were they funneling in that you saw made a, a marked improvement on their decision making? Yeah. So in particular, you know, they're taking a look at some high level metrics, I would say, to make sure that they're driving the growth that they're expecting to get. So even something as simple as their asset center management, you know, a lot of times they'll have to go to their website or somewhere else to see exactly what's there. Um, but the percent of their acquisitions that are currently going through, the percent of the developments that are going through, really the pace of the deployment are all metrics that they were looking to track. We actually saw a shift in this. So again, from a more qualitative perspective, then they started taking a look um, at the, the lease-up timings and kind of the construction close dates. Um, and that's when we saw a shift in really critical dates becoming super important, these workflows becoming important. Um, yeah. Great. Um, and then uh, you had the second question for you. Um, so this case study was about a client with the goal of growing their portfolio. So how have we seen um, a client in other verticals with other goals grow? Yeah. Yeah. So this was specifically with an, an industrial client. Um, but we've seen this with, you know, our typical commercial assets, so multifamily office retail. Um, but also we've been seeing a lot of especially with the markets out today, we've seen a ton of uh, growth for development firms um, and particularly home builders. So there's been a large amount of growth um, within that space and needing some automation to their tools that they're leveraging. Another space that I think isn't um, typically thought about you know, within this realm is just debt tracking. So being able to track debt on all of these assets that they're, um, that they're looking to grow. Got it. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Cassie. Um, really great to hear from you and, and what you've been working on. Uh, I'd like to invite the rest of the panel back onto the stage for Q&A session. Um, we have questions available from the audience, so please use that chat box to ask questions of the panelists, and we'll circle back to that at the end of the Q&A session. So we have all our panelists here and then Kelly joining on microphone. So first question is for, for Aaron and Sunder. Um, ESG and AI are obviously really large areas to start in, and a lot of people can easily get overwhelmed by the suite of solutions that are out there. So how would you recommend taking, these, taking first steps in each of these really large commitments? Sundar, we'll go to you first. Okay. Um, as, a, as we had discussed earlier, Hazel, um, you know, you know, as I said, like earlier, like, you know, you want to take it slowly, you know, basically you want to look at like, what is the business problem that you're trying to solve? Um, you know, start small, you know, again, there'll be a lot of like failures. Um, and that too, with a AI and ML related uh, areas, you know, you will have these failures. And I think you should actually 
uh, it's basically a process for you to augment what is out there rather than saying this is the way of the future, right? So I think people have to be grounded on that particular plane. Um, I think the more value you get from, you know, to get to that particular place, you can start on automating some of your processes, which will definitely help out. I think that's basically where you can start first, automation of processes, and that will actually then lead into your other things about looking into the AI and ML side of the house. Got it. Yeah, can... totally agree with that because um, uh, what you said about it, I, I was curious because you, you said AI and then you, you scale back and went into um, uh, robotic process automation, which which makes a lot of sense. So um, so yeah, I think what you're saying at process kind of talks with what Cassie had mentioned before um, on like really looking at why you're doing things from an organizational standpoint before you um, go ahead and uh, accelerate the pace that you're doing it. So it makes a lot of sense that you would look at uh, process revision and smoothing over because you know the different departments operate with different um, uh, prerogatives and sometimes people don't talk to each other. So that coordination is very important. Um, great, Aaron, what about you? Yeah, so I actually, Good point, Hazel. IT takes a different role in uh, the automation projects. IT really shouldn't be the driver of automation that has to come from the business. Um, we just did an automation project here with JD Edwards and um, some uh, lease abstraction data using Orchestrator. And this was a program where I sat side by side with our lease analyst team to learn and build the project with them because I think with any type of automation or AI, if it's delivered as a project from IT, it's less likely to gain, you know, like gain traction. It has to come from the business. They have to buy in because there has to be a little bit of a cultural shift because you're chipping into people's the way that they work, type of work that they're doing. So that's that's the first thing is cultural change, buy in. IT is now a partner versus a, a service provider, basically. Um, the second thing that is is really a takeaway, since we're talking about automation specifically, is a lot of the service providers we're already using, like the external vendors, I use JD Edwards as an example, but they're extending their suite of services to have tools where you can write automation really easily. And it seems overwhelming because you think like, oh, I need someone that has machine learning, like, uh, you know, or that has like very high level, like, um, data programming, Python, like SQL experience, you oftentimes don't by leveraging the existing platform. So if you're interested in dabbling with automation, talk to your ERP provider and see if they have a, a bolt-on module, see if they have a partner they're already working with, because the odds are they they already have that in place. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and so for your approach, Aaron, um, for, for your more ambitious ESG goals, um, was what are kind of the first steps that you found um, through trial and error would, would be uh, a good approach for say someone who's brand new and says yeah we we have lead buildings but you know that's all we haven't really taken next steps in the last two years to to do anything material. Yeah, so I mean defining ESG, writing ESG, and and doing it with an organization is is a uh, almost an insurmountable task at the moment. Um, Car started the journey with a an annual sustainability report where we focus on how our sustainability efforts really affect ESG versus starting with ESG first. Um, so the sustainability reports really outlines what are we doing, lead, 
IAQ um, and you know resource mitigation in, in many other ways. Uh, and then we let that essentially populate our ESG strategy. Uh, but to Sunder's point, this, it's all about you know taking those like micro wins, those small wins of projects, uh, and whether it's doing a pilot with IAQ IoT or even starting to define uh, some sustainability initiatives for the next year. Uh, those are both great places to start. Great, thanks for sharing that. So uh, next questions are for Cassie and for Kelly. Um, making You deal with a lot of data on the uh, acquisitions and disposition side, and I found usually decisions revolving this, these data sets are usually deep-rooted in the way a company is used to looking at spreadsheets and used to doing things online, right? Maybe in like Access or definitely in Excel. So what are some tips that you would give to organizations who are struggling to get everyone on board with a new way of looking at market data? Cassie, do you wanna start? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, going from spreadsheets and the whole change management process is always gonna be you know, somewhat of a, of a hill to get through with, with your clients. Um, and that's both from a technology perspective and from a business side. You know, both the IT has things that they're going to have to put in place as well as the, the business users. Um, I would say if they're struggling to get people um, adjusted to the, to the change, again, I'm kind of going back to my slides, but starting small. Um, what is the day-to-day -day functions that they're doing? What are like the elements of that that matters the most to them? And showcase how that works within the system. Let's start with one task, show them how that's bringing a benefit, how quickly and easily it was for them to get to that. And I think that kind of pro provides trust and it builds trust with the client between the software and allows them to then progress to bigger elements of the system. Um, there's all, you know, there's a lot of different approaches as well, whether that's bottom up and top down, but having a top down approach too, you know, if, if the CEO or an executive is going to be looking at data that is in the system and that person isn't putting it in, uh, then that meeting's not going to go very well. So that's another approach here that I think um, I've seen work. So I think a combination of both is is generally key. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Kelly, do you have any uh, insights on that as well? Yeah. Um, you know, real estate departments these days are really being challenged to find opportunities in their portfolios, you know, with COVID and work from home and all these things that are going on, everybody has sort of different demands by their you know, executive leadership as to how can we save money, you know, and do we need all this stuff? And getting people to adopt to new things is a challenge, but then when the, when the mandate of we've got to have, you know, some ideas from real estate uh, comes up, you know, giving them a, an opportunity to say, we've got a great way that we can save some money. We know how we need to get this stuff. We just have to have access to it. So I think putting the priority in, and again, somebody said earlier, don't let um, IT drive this stuff. This is a business process issue, not really a technology issue. You know, if we need to save money, we have to understand where the opportunities are. And the only way to get that is to say, you know, we're, we're paying a certain square foot or uh, a certain, certain fee per, per, per square foot here, for example, and how can we make sure we could get better opportunities or maybe there's a building across the street that's empty and how are we going to know about that? We can, you know, cut a lease short and move over there and save some money. And that kind of grassroots effort for a whole portfolio can really add up to a lot of savings. You know, if you could save 50 cents per square foot on your entire portfolio and you have a million square feet, that's going to add up to a lot of stuff. So 
putting the carrot out there of saying, if we adopt new ways of doing things and adopt new ways of getting our data kind of in hand so we can look at it, uh, which is usually outside of an Excel spreadsheet alone, uh, that tends to entice people to go, okay, let's see what you can do with access to that new um, data and new strategy for approaching uh, finding portfolio opportunities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and then like, like you said, all these uh, different angles that you're talking about, uh, looking at deals, um, we always joked uh, when I was dealing with NCMBS, that was death by a thousand paper cuts and every different property in the portfolio and every decision was a paper cut. So um, yeah, really true what you're saying there. And I think this touches back on Sunder's um, uh, presentation on um, the 5% variance in valuation. Um, a lot of people, especially in finance, are like, oh, okay, 5%. That doesn't sound like that much. And like, well, I mean, when we were doing project costing and bid leveling, construction if your budget is 200 million five percent makes a pretty big difference uh -huh. at that point right so um really really like um that point you brought up kelly that like everything adds up and if you roll up all these variances that's pretty material at the end of the day on the actual volume and number right um so uh, looking back on um kind of your guys's experience working with either different clients or um, over your expertise with the projects you've covered so far, what are big mistakes that owners and operators usually tend to make when adopting new projects dealing with data, um, and specifically the data segment that you've been covering? Um, how would you recommend to avoid these situations? Um, I think, uh, Aaron, let's start with you and then um, go to the left, uh, and then we can take Kelly next. Sure. So. I I think the um, having the right partner in place uh, has been has helped us avoid a lot of the pitfalls. Um, we worked with RestorePoint; they've been phenomenal. Uh, they help with our data warehousing uh, and a lot of the backend pieces to it. Um, so, getting the right partner on board uh, is certainly it. And the other lesson lessons learned um, as we've gone through the data collection journey is just the method to decouple your data from your front end tool. Uh, we're on, I think the third or fourth uh, front end toy right now, we're visualizing through ThoughtSpot. We've been on SiteSense, uh, Power BI, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll be on the next one when the next best one comes out. But we were able to move nimbly because we followed the decoupled method of we have our, our data warehouse, it's separate from our front end. Um, and that's been a huge benefit and a potential pitfall that had we not set it up at the beginning that way, we've been paying the price for now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, that's something that, that I've been hearing as a recurring theme that when people are bringing up that to, to decouple that, um, uh, a lot of people <laughs> pause and they're like, oh no, because they realize they're, they're, yeah, they're, that's a great idea, but they also realize they're, they're uh, waist deep in uh, not having that decoupled and um, they're, uh, they need to revise that. So it's so a great, great point there. Uh, Kelly, uh, what about you? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd echo something similar to that. Um, a lot of our customers work with, you know, leading service providers, you know, CBRE, JLL, that kind of crowd to, to you know, facilitate their real estate operations, uh, that kind of stuff. And we certainly, you know, you know, think that's a great working partnership you have to have. But at the same time, you know, we find that customers who are getting their own access to external data kind of fact checking or double checking their gut instincts about things. And even, you know, the confidentiality issue, whether a lot of companies want to make moves, like if they're going to change their headquarters to another state, 
or acquire another company, you know, having a little independence of data access is a valuable thing. Again, not to uh, disparage anything for what service providers offer to uh, the customers that we work through, but just being able to gut check things and, and have responsibility for that, I think there's uh, a lot of value in uh, how you look at that from a strategy standpoint. Again, going through the processes, not the, the technology itself to dictate what should be going on there. Great points. Um, Cassie, um, any input there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm also, you know, kind of reiterating here, but um, not leveraging their software partners enough is something that I've seen. You know, these each software partner is uh, is a is a champion and and is the best resource that you can have in order to make sure that these are running well. They know the software the best. So working hand in hand with them, you know, a lot of times I think people are a little bit afraid to um, reach out and ask about a ton of questions because they think that they should know it already. But I think that leveraging that resource is is definitely key. Um, I would say also putting together the project team early on is something that's super helpful. Um, a lot of times, you know, these contract negotiations take a while to get signed, and so all of a sudden you're jumping into a project, and having that resource alignment is going to be key for that implementation to go well. So just making sure that you really do have a champion in kind of each of the groups that that might be there. Otherwise, the data exchange takes takes some time, um, and backups along the way. <laughs> Always backing up your data. Yeah, yeah, I think what you said about the, the on the client side um, with them being hesitant to really reach out and ask the questions, I think a lot of times from, from what I've heard is like, oh, but we do it like this and no one else does it like this. And you know, we have a special way of doing things, right? But I, I think for for if you've worked at enough places and done enough projects, you're like, no, there's there's a core that that is the same. So that's something I would encourage owners and operators from what Cassie was saying is like, yes, you do it a very specific way and it may be different than the folks that you do know. But I, I think um, folks like Cassie or Kelly who've seen a lot of different projects, they can bring not only, oh, you're similar to this and these were some of the best practices that help provide a huge lift for them. Right. And so um, the the initial knee jerk reaction, like, oh, no, 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 it's not the same. I'm like, no, but I mean, if you actually look into it, you, you can save yourself a lot of time by just considering that, oh, they did this, this and this. And they're similar. They have a similar structure to you. Right. Uh, Sundar, do you have any uh, anything to add on that point? No, I think uh, most of the team actually covered in um, most of the stuff. Um, the only thing that we actually do and we, we still are striving for that, like is data cleansing. Right. So. The data is as good as you know what is out there. Uh, sometimes we tend to use you know like you know like you know the data that's actually being put in. It has to be you know good data for you for your well to, for you to get the value, and that's the data governance and the data cleansing that that needs to happen before and the process that needs to be followed through. Uh, so that's basically the only thing I would add to this whole conversation. Got it. Um, so I, I'm going to circle around to some of the audience questions. Um, uh, audience, if you have any additional questions, we have some good ones coming in. I'm going to start from the top. Um, someone had a question for Sunder on um, your model for budgeting. How did that handle capital expenditures, like understanding the status of a flat roof, or um, what was it, or what's involved with inspection portion of the budget process? So really, how do you integrate? like feedback from the inspections into the budget instead of making it like, oh, this is a one shot. We're doing this with the AI. 
because um, budgeting is obviously it's a loop of people going oh we need this this and this so so what would you say there for for identifying that there's the so, metadata side here and then the process side i'm, I'm seeing right. Right. So, you know, in, in our model, I think we looked at it from a higher high level perspective. We did not go into the details side of the things, right? When you go into details, the model becomes very complicated. Um, that's one thing that we realized upfront. You know, that's the reason why, you know, we are basically going to be looking at, you know, you know, where we, you know, the solutions are there. You know, the, the solution that I actually brought up, elevo.ai. So they, that particular company actually helps, you know, take in all these data sets. They have a solution data set that they can be able to look into some of those details that uh, the individual asked. Uh, for us, it was pretty much at a high level. We basically rolled up all these different capital expenditures at a high level and said, like, you know, we did it at the higher level, then going into the details. Um, you know, I'll have more to provide as we go along the journey. Again, this is just a start, right? So, uh, you know, there's a continual iterative process that we will have to go through, and you know, I'll have more information uh, as we go into the into the details of, you know, as you uh, as we go there. Yeah. So to answer the question, like we haven't done that, so but we'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, I see how it's a logical progression because there's some computer vision companies with drones that are able to look at roofs and do metadata tagging. So flat roof versus yeah. like the angle of the roof. So um, it gets interesting at that point. But yeah, I, I like what you said, Senator, starting from a high level viewpoint, because a lot of times if you get stuck in the weeds with the metadata, you miss out on defining like a, a scope that actually works for the business. So yeah, I would, I, I would highly recommend to take Sunder, like you were saying, your approach, instead of going, oh, we haven't tagged every single possible iteration of a roof, so we can't make this model. But from what Sunder was showing, you have a almost 5% variance you can spot with high level non-tagged data, right? So that's already a huge lift. Imagine if you actually start tagging the data, what additional lift you can have, right? So um, I had some questions for, for Aaron, um, two of them. Um, do you, one, do you use CO2 sensors to determine space occupancy? And two, do you use lighting controls to um, have a dual use so you don't have to add in additional sensors? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, I'm, the, the CO2 piece, I mean, certainly that's a, that's a priority for monitoring. Uh, and it's, it's interesting right now that, uh, you know, our buildings are seeing lower occupancies than before the pandemic, but as people are returning to work and we're seeing kind of week over week growth with that, uh, that Omicron is in the rear view mirror, um, that we're monitoring CO2 very, very closely. And it's not that we would tie, you know, CO2 levels to space occupancy, but it's more so tying um, the BMS commands, the HVAC systems, kind of those, the back end information to the, um, to the CO2 reads. Uh, and the, what was the second part of the question? Um, like yeah. Are you working with lighting control companies lighting. and lighting vendors on data built into BMS using BACnet point? It's really specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we are do, we are moving to POE lighting. Uh, if that's kind of higher level question on the hardware. Um, yeah, POE lighting is, uh, is definitely, uh, in the process and, and on our roadmap. Um, and I think one of the benefits is like, once you once you get cabling for PoE lighting, then you can use that to do like PoE sensors of all different types. 
and also PoE lighting itself, I think they're going to change the name because it includes a lot more than lighting now. Like our PoE lighting vendor also reads temperature, humidity, CO2, like basic air quality elements. So I wouldn't be surprised if lighting is the kind of backbone of, like PoE lighting is the backbone of IoT uh, in the next gen, just because getting power to IoT de devices, having done this myself and running cables through the craziest parts of buildings and getting super dirty, um, that's oftentimes the hardest part of doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, but once you have the data, it makes it all worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> and crawling through air vents and uh, taking down yeah. walls. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So a couple um, last uh, questions to close out the the panel. This is um, uh, the, this one is one minute each for Cassie and Sunder. What new applications of data are you really excited about, and um, how do you see this affecting the industry in the future? Cassie, you want to start, and then I'll jump in. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that in general, I'm I'm excited about the different AI applications that are coming out. Um, I see that I see that this comes up across the board in a number of uh, really in all markets um, and all different elements. So I think that the automation here is going to be key. Um, I also think that in general, I'm excited uh, just to see the the building of the reporting capabilities across the board. There's so many different reporting types. Um, but I think that as we advance in that and as we become smarter in those data analytics, it's going to be a, a really interesting way to start to analyze trends in more real time. Wonderful. Senator? Yeah, from our end perspective, from my perspective, um, you know, what we are seeing from our, from, from our business side of the house is, you know, to actually how to, you know, uh, get to a bigger customer base than what we have today. So more on the sales side, you know, working with our sales group to actually get more into that particular area. Um, so, you know, how you deal with our broker dealers, our registered independent, independent advisors and other, other areas, right? So that would be a key area for us to actually work through. You know, there is a big barrier right now as to, you know, how soon we can actually put a product out and get them to buy into it. So, you know, reduce that particular amount there. The other thing is from an operational perspective, there are many areas that we can actually look into. Um, you know, we just actually moved to Yardi. Um, you know, it was a big, huge exercise moving from JD Edwards to Yardi. Uh, and in, in, in lieu of that, like we also got, you know, a, we also reduced a lot of our applications across the board. So that opens up other areas within our system base to actually look into from an operational perspective where we can actually help out. Um, from an industry perspective, again, I'm I'm not much more, you know, we don't do a lot of IoT and other areas that Aaron and others actually are leaders in and basically do my, many more things on that side of the house. Um, so my area is basically in a smaller uh, capacity to actually look forward and basically I want to see much more of an automation across the board with the various processes, which are still manual for, you know, lack of better words. So areas in leasing, areas in um, uh, reporting, as, as Cassie was saying, um, you know, we create a lot of brochures for our investors, you know, how you can actually pull them together to create them quicker, faster and other things. So Great. Thank you so much for that, Zander. Um, just to wrap up the questions, one last one for Aaron and Kelly. 
Um, what do you consider the top challenge as you head down the path toward um, continuous modernization and what you're doing? Um, and what is your strategy for, for tackling um, this challenge, one of the main challenges that you see? Kelly, do you want to start with this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think automation is the, is the buzzword we use around here the most. Um, I have to call it idiot proofing things. You know, you, you've got to find ways to reduce human error when it comes to data entry. You know, so we build systems that say, is did you mean to put a, a number here instead of a text field and that kind of stuff? So trying to continuously look at every small detail of where you can eliminate, you know, entry because the old garbage in, garbage out kind of philosophy applies to, to data and, and you know, streamlining things and also securing things because there's such a uh, emphasis among um, platforms to be secure so things don't get hacked, stolen and otherwise. And some of our customers are very demanding, like in the banking space, that things are checked and certified and that kind of stuff. So I'd say just you know reducing data entry errors and security issues are the biggest challenges we see uh, to focus on from a solution standpoint. Great. Uh, Aaron, any extracts to that while we wrap this up? So, totally agree. Data quality is, is key. You cannot do automation if you don't have quality data. Um, there, the other thing to add is, um, you know, people that are familiar with and can, can run out of like AI automation, like data programs um, are difficult to find right now. Um, so the job market is, you know, it does not, um, make those those folks affordable so that's the other challenge that i'm seeing uh, yep that's it though but uh same points as kelly awesome well thank you so much for for your time today panelists um i'm gonna bring chuck back up on the stage to close out the discussion all right thank you hazel great discussion for the group i i was almost hoping it would go towards uh carbon net zero data moving in that direction and and uh uh, you know, we just run out of time. So we'll save that for another day. Thanks to all our panelists. All your contributions are so valuable to today's session. And for our live audience and those watching this as a recording, we do thank you for tuning in. And be sure to go to realcom.com to register for Realcom Live. That airs every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. And this week's episode features Scott Morey, president of technology and WeWork Workplace. And we'll also start our next educational webinar series. It's called Workplace and Experience, airing two weeks from today on March the 10th, where we'll explore the first uh, webinar will be the hybrid tech stack, accelerating the digital future of work. And finally, don't wait to register for the realcom.com uh, IBCOM or the Realcom IBCOM conference event. Aaron spoke about it earlier. It's a valuable, uh, uh, exercise of getting everybody together. It's going to be in Orlando. It's June 15th and 16th. That's when the conference part is, but they do have a golf outing and pre-conference events earlier in the week. You want to check those out on realcom.com. So thanks again to everyone. Excellent webinar, fantastic information. I'm sure some people are going to be looking forward to getting this recording. So enjoy your day. Thank you again for all your contributions. Everybody be safe and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, everyone. All right. See ya. Bye.